Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 136 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, how can our prayers be more effective? So hello, everybody. Happy Wednesday to you. As you hear this, I should be well on the way to Colorado now, passing through Utah for the first time in my life. If I somehow don't make it back, you can be sure that the Mormons have captured me and are torturing me to learn all of the classified and above top secret Baptist facts that I know of. Don't worry. I'll never tell the Baptist secret fried chicken recipe death first. Today's Bible readings include Numbers 22, which actually introduces us to a most interesting and strange Bible figure named Balaam. We're also reading Psalm 62 through 63, Isaiah 11 and 12, and James chapter 5, which is our focus passage. Today is an episode on prayer, and James 5 is one of my favorite and most challenging Bible teachings on prayer in the Word. It teaches us to pray big prayers of faith and to expect an answer to those prayers. So let's read the passage. James chapter 5, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay you that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourself. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So what a wonderful passage. The centerpiece verse there should really be a focus for us, and it should be probably memorized and meditated on. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. The preceding verses tell us what kind of effect we're talking about. Physical effects, healing effects, noticeable effects, 
as well as spiritual effects like forgiveness and such. So what does it mean to be righteous? Is James telling us that only the most sinless and holy Christians will have their prayers answered? Well, I actually believe there's some truth to that. Those who are led by the Spirit and who turn from sin and turn towards God, I think the testimony of the Bible is those people will be more effectual in their prayers than those who love the world and the things of the world and sin and give themselves to sin. The word here for righteous people is applied to uh, people like Joseph, the father of Jesus, and Cornelius, the praying, God-fearing, and poor people helping Roman centurion. They're both called righteous before they came became Christians. So in one sense, the word does indicate a type of moral righteousness characterized by good works and godly moral choices, but I don't think that's primarily the way that James is using the word here. I believe he's primarily talking about those who have been declared righteous or justified by what Jesus did on the cross. The problem is that according to Romans 3.10, no one is ultimately righteous before God. Certainly, some are more righteous than others, but none in and of themselves are righteous, not even a single one. But the good news is, according to Romans 5.19, for just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, talking about Adam, so also through the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. This means that some are made righteous by grace through faith by Jesus, and that is the righteousness out of which Christians pray from, the declared, imputed, imparted righteousness from Jesus. That, of course, doesn't give us a license to sin, and I do believe that sin muffles our prayers, but ultimately, a Christian's righteousness is in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in the position to pray big prayers like Elijah. You might be saying, eh, hold on there, partner. Elijah was a great man of God, an incredible prophet, and a man of overwhelmingly gargantuan faith. I can't be like that, can I? And if I was sitting here with James right now, I bet he'd say something along the lines of, Yes, you can. That's absolutely the point of what I was writing in this passage. In other words, the Bible is indeed telling us to pray like Elijah and using Elijah as an illustration of how we should pray. Absolutely, what Elijah was a giant of the faith. But as James tells us, he was human. In other words, he was flawed. In other words, he was weak. In other words, he was like us. Consider, Elijah didn't have some special lineage that he was descended from, and there was no big burning bush incident by which Elijah was called uh, to be a prophet. Instead, it went like this. This is 1 Kings 17, 1 through 7. This is the first appearance of Elijah. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from the Gilead settlers said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives in whose presence I stand, There will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide at the Wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. You are to drink from the Wadi. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So he proceeded to do what the Lord commanded. Elijah left and lived at the Wadi Cherith, where it enters the Jordan. The ravens kept bringing him bread and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he would drink from the Wadi. After a while, the wadi dried up because there had been no rain on the land. So did you catch that? Elijah, in faith, based on probably God's word from Deuteronomy, went up to the king of Israel, the bad, crummy, evil king of of Israel, and he made a faith-based pronouncement. 
But the thing is, Elijah comes out of nowhere. Who is he? We don't know. He's from Tishbe. We don't know his parents or his people or his calling or hardly anything about Tishbe. Once he prophesies to Ahab, God sends him to a wadi, which is like a dry riverbed that only has water in it during the rainy season. And there he drinks from the river and eats bread from, you know, birds. And, you know, that's kind of weird, but honestly, so are many of you. Well, uh, me too. So James is showing us Elijah was a man. Was he a superman? Well, he won that big showdown with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. That was pretty special, except that he actually didn't do anything there except for pray. God did the whole thing. Elijah caused it to rain after a super drought that lasted years, except that Elijah didn't actually do anything there either. He just asked God repeatedly until God answered his prayer. Elijah was just a human, not a superman. In fact, there were times in his life that Elijah struggled with depression, loneliness, and fear. And I'm not talking about merely being unsettled and having a hard time going to sleep at night or whatever. I'm talking about the kind of fear that makes you run away from the whole world by walking miles into the wilderness and hiding in a cave. Now, many of us struggle with fear and anxiety from time to time, but most of us, I presume almost all of us listening to me right now, haven't walked miles into the woods to get away from it all and tried to live in a cave. Elijah did, because Elijah was human just like us. The same vexing emotions and weaknesses we have, the same ups and downs, the same troubles, maybe even worse. In fact, not only was Elijah troubled sometimes, he was downright suicidal, like he literally wanted to die. He had that level of a despair in his life. And this is the guy that James is pointing to us as an example of prayer. Elijah prayed world-shaking prayers and saw God answer them, but Elijah was just a man, just a human. Well, what was his secret then? Well, it's a silly question in one sense because Elijah didn't do anything apart from praying. His secret, I guess if you want to call it that, the key is that he prayed persistently without ever giving up. He kept praying. So we see this picture, uh, the, the illustration that James is giving us a call back to, 1 Kings 18, 42 through 46. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Mount Carmel. He bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. So he went up, looked, and said, there's nothing. Seven times Elijah said, go back. And this whole time, Elijah is praying and nothing is happening. And the Elijah, and the servant keeps going back and seeing nothing. Keep in mind, this is a cloudless day in the middle of a super drought. It hasn't rained in years. And Elijah keeps praying for rain. Seven times Elijah said, go back. On the seventh time, he reported, there's a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. That's not very big. Then Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. In a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind. There was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah and he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So what do we learn from Elijah about prayer? Well, we learn he's a human. We learn he's not a superhuman. We learn that the way he prayed was persistence. Or as Jesus put it in Luke chapter 18, always pray, never give up. Well, let's keep reading. 
Numbers chapter 22, verse 1. The Israelites traveled on and camped in the plains of Moab near the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Moab was terrified of the people because they were numerous, and Moab dreaded the Israelites. So the Moabites said to the elders of Midian, This horde will devour everything around us like an ox eats up the green plants in the field. Since Balak, son of Zippor, was Moab's king at that time, he sent messengers to Balaam, son of Beor, at Pethor, which is by the Euphrates in the land of his people. Balak said to him, Look, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the surface of the land and are living right across from me. Please come and put a curse on these people for me because they are more powerful than I am. I may be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that those you bless are blessed and those you curse are cursed. The elders of Moab and Midian departed with fees for divination in hand. They came to Balaam and reported Balak's words to him. He said, Spend the night here and I will give you the answer the Lord tells me. So the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and asked, Who are these men with you? Balaam replied to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent this message to me. Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the surface of the land. Now come and put a curse on them for me. I may be able to fight them and drive them away. Then God said to Balaam, You are not to go with them. You are not to curse this people, for they are blessed. So Balaam got up the next morning and said to Balak's officials, Go back to your land, because the Lord has refused to let me go with you. The officials of Moab arose, returned to Balak, and reported, Balaam refused to come with us. Balak sent officials again, who were more numerous and higher in rank than the others. They came to Balaam and said to him, This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Let nothing keep you from coming to me, for I will greatly honor you and do whatever you ask me. So please come and put a curse on these people for me. But Balaam responded to the servants of Balak, If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go against the command of the Lord my God to do anything small or great. Please stay here overnight as the others did, so I may find out what else the Lord has to tell me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, Since these men have come to summon you, get up and go with them, but you must only do what I tell you. When he got up in the morning, Balaam saddled his donkey and went out with the officials of Moab. But God was incensed that Balaam was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand on the path to oppose him. Balaam was riding his donkey, and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the path with a sword drawn in his hand, she turned off the path and went into the field. So Balaam hit her to return her to the path. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow passage between the vineyards with a stone wall on either side. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord and pressed herself against the wall, squeezing Balaam's foot against it. So he hit her once again. The angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she crouched down under Balaam. So he became furious and beat the donkey with his stick. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth and she asked Balaam, What have I done to you that you have beaten me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey, You made me look like a fool. If I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. But the donkey said, Am I not the donkey you've ridden all your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? No, he replied. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the path with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam knelt low and bowed in worship on his face. The angel of the Lord asked him, Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? Look, I came out to oppose you because I consider what you are doing to be evil. 
The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If she had not turned away from me, I would have killed you by now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the path to confront me. And now, if it is evil in your sight, I will go back. Then the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but you are to say only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the Moabite city on the Arnon border at the edge of his territory. Balak asked Balaam, Did I not send you an urgent summons? Why didn't you come to me? Am I really not able to reward you? Balaam said to him, Look, I've come to you, but can I say anything I want? I must only speak the message God puts in my mouth. So Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Hutzoth. Balak sacrificed cattle, sheep, and goats, and sent for Balaam and the officials who were with him. In the morning, Balak took Balaam and brought him to Bamoth Baal. From there, they saw the outskirts of the people's camp. Psalm chapter 62, verse 1. I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My stronghold, I will never be shaken. How long will you threaten a man? Will all of you attack as if he were a leaning wall or a tottering fence? They only plan to bring him down from his high position. They take pleasure in lying. They bless with their mouths, but they curse inwardly. Rest in God alone, my soul, for my hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be shaken. My salvation and glory depend on God, my strong rock. My refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before him. God is our refuge. Common people are only a vapor. Important people an illusion. Together on a scale, they weigh less than a vapor. Place no trust in oppression or false hope in robbery. If wealth increases, don't set your heart on it. God has spoken once. I have heard this twice. Strength belongs to God and faithful long love belongs to you, Lord, for you repay each according to his works. Psalm 63. God, you are my God. I eagerly seek you. I thirst for you. My body faints for you. In a land that is dry, desolate, and without water, so I gaze on you in your sanctuary to see your strength and your glory. My lips will glorify you because your faithful love is better than life. So I will bless you as long as I live. At your name, I will lift up my hands. You satisfy me as with rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I think of you as I lie on my bed, I meditate on you during the night watches because you are my helper. I will rejoice in the shadow of your wings. I will follow close to you. Your right hand holds on to me. But those who intend to destroy my life will go into the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the power of the sword. They will become a meal for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him will boast, for the mouths of liars will be shut. Isaiah chapter 11. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears. But he will judge the poor righteously and execute justice for the oppressed of the land. He will strike the land with a scepter from his mouth, and he will kill the wicked with a command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. 
The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my holy mountain, for my land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. On that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for peoples. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his resting place will be glorious. On that day, the Lord will extend his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people who survived from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and the coasts and islands of the west. He will lift up a banner for the nations and gather to the dispersed of Israel. He will collect the scattered of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Ephraim's envy will cease. Judah's harassing will end. Ephraim will no longer be envious of Judah, and Judah will not harass Ephraim. But they will swoop down on the Philistine flank to the west. Together they will plunder the people of the east. They will extend their power over Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be their subjects. The Lord will divide the gulf of Suez. He will wave his hand over the Euphrates with his mighty wind and will split it into seven streams, letting people walk through on foot. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will survive from Assyria as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Isaiah chapter 12. On that day you will say, I will give thanks to you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Indeed, God is my salvation. I will trust him and not be afraid. For the Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. You will joyfully draw water from the springs of salvation. And on that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, proclaim his name, make his works known among the peoples, declare that his name is exalted, sing to the Lord for he has done glorious things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry out and sing, citizen of Zion, For the Holy One of Israel is among you in his greatness. Amen and amen to that. May we make known his works among the peoples. Give thanks to the Lord. Proclaim his name. God bless you, friends, and Godspeed.